Good evening, Sangha. Can you all hear me? Great. So uh, I'm going to talk tonight about faith, sadha, or confidence, and uh, just how important it is in uh, our path to awakening. So um, according to the Abhidhamma, you know, there's 52 mental qualities that we could all have or only 52 things happening at any given time in these mind-body processes. And uh, faith and confidence is one of those things that uh, um, when there are wholesome mind states, uh, it's possible that faith and confidence is there. It's a very wholesome mind state. So faith, confidence, sada, it's characteristic you know, what it looks like is that it trusts. It's trusting. And its function, its task is to clarify or to set forth. So it actually feels like it could be an intention or it could feed a very wholesome intention, confidence, faith. Its manifestation, how it presents itself, is as non-fogginess and resolution, to be resolute to do something with confidence and faith. And its prox proximal cause is having something to have uh, faith in. <laughs> something to place faith in. So I guess you could also have unwholesome faith, right? I'm sure if we place, faith in, uh, place a lot of faith and energy in things that are not, as they say, forward leading, that is one of our um, <coughs> insider terms for towards enlightenment, forward leading. I like that term, forward leading. So um, the factor of conviction, faith, or confidence, it actually is really important. It's a very important quality to have in the mind and to see when it's there and to nurture and grow because it's one of the requisites for awakening. And I'm sure that you all have heard about the four stages of awakening. It's particularly important for um, yogis who are... Um, trying to or are moving forward towards stream entry or the first level of awakening. And it's said that um, faith or conviction or faith in the, the way it's manifest here is actually needed all the way until full awakening because uh, it's only when you're a fully awakened arhat that you don't know, you no longer need faith because you have the knowledge of the truth. You don't necessarily need to believe anything because you just know what's true and what isn't. So it's useful in all stages of the path. And there are three dimensions of faith, three ways that faith can uh, work to support us as we, as we um, practice the Eightfold Path. The first dimension of faith is a social dimension, a social dimension of faith. And that comes down to who do we trust? 
Who do we spend our time with? Who is our community? That's the social dimension. The second dimension of faith is an intellectual dimension. And that's about what we believe. Who are we listening to? And finally, the third dimension of faith is a practical dimension or a practice dimension. What do we do? So who do we trust? What do we believe? And what do we do? Those are the three dimensions of this very wholesome mental factor, sada, faith, confidence. So what is the social dimension? Who do we trust? Who is it good to associate with? The Buddha said a lot about that. You know, the whole idea of uh, Sangha being one of the three refuges, that was a really important, a very important dimension of the Dhamma. And actually in the suttas, uh, according to Tan Jeff and Wings to Awakening, it specifically says uh, three qualities in people that if you see any of these qualities in people, you should not hang around with them. <laughs> what could be those qualities? <laughs> I thought this was good advice, actually, so I like to see it. One, don't hang around with anybody who criticizes the practice of generosity or dana. That was pretty interesting. And if you have any ambivalence about it, you should work through it <laughs> quickly. <laughs> the second quality that if you see in people, you should not spend time with them, is if they criticize the practice of going forth or even the renunciation of any, any worldly things for the practice of the Dhamma. So anyone who is telling you, oh, you know, come to the bar and let's drink some whiskey. Or, you know, let's go buy some pot or something. <laughs> <laughs> or just who wants to spend a lot of money on, there are, is very medicinal uses of both of those entities. I want to put that out there. Don't want to trigger anybody. <laughs> And there is medicinal uses, but um, just, you know, for those of us who just don't want to spend a lot of money on things that might uh, be very tempting and sexy in the moment, but absolutely, as soon as you get it, there's very short-lived uh, happiness or sometimes no happiness at all. So anyone who uh, criticized the, the practice of renunciation or to devote your life to the Dharma... They're not good people to hang around with. And this was an interesting one. The third one is anyone who criticizes any one of us for uh, giving service to our parents. I thought that was interesting. So we should really support people. Caring for their parents. So, um, and then there were some very positive qualities that 
we can see in people and we know that if people have these qualities, these are really excellent people to hang around. One is conviction, conviction and the principle of kama. And just uh, a real understanding and belief and practice of, uh, one way to say that is that we're all responsible for our own way we walk in the world, that we ultimately have responsibility ourselves. of how we react to greed, hatred, and delusion at multiple levels and how we react to all the positive qualities, the paramis. And just the conviction of knowing that our actions absolutely have an impact on potential happiness and peace and ease or suffering and lack of safety and harm for those around us as well. So anyone who practices and knows the principles of kama are good people to hang around. People who are generous are excellent people to hang around. They have good qualities and that's considered a foundation for wisdom to grow. Sila, virtue. People who you can see have really excellent qualities. And I'll tell you, that's what first <laughs> attracted me to my fiance. You know, he's a, he's a Buddhist and he works for a tribe, so we had that in common, but he just has impeccable sila. And it just really was so beautiful to see that impeccable sila. You know, you don't have to worry about the crazy things that sometimes we worry about in relationship. It was just, didn't have to worry about any of that. It was so beautiful. So seeing, uh, Virtue and sila, those who have a lot of integrity, definitely want to spend time with them. And of course, people with discernment and wisdom are people to hang around with, are safe people to spend our time with. Knowledge of the Dhamma is another characteristic of a, a positive quality that we should uh, really look at in people that we're spending time of. Here's one that I'm not exactly sure what it means. Knowledge of the meaning of statements. Knowledge of the meaning of statements. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> I love this one. Another quality that we, or is really uh, attractive in people is a sense of one's own strengths and weaknesses. To me, that really is humility, to know humility and to know what our, um, to really recognize the positive qualities in all of us as well. That's not a small thing. When you can see uh, the seven factors of awakening in your mind or the five spiritual faculties, when there's some parami in there, it's excellent to know that and to just say, yeah, that's goodness. To see that in ourselves and in others is a very positive uh, use of mindfulness to be able to see that. Because we can see humility and to also know where we need to work, you know, what we need to work on is also really excellent. And to do it with a lot, a lot you know, without a lot of taking it personally. That's wisdom. A sense, uh, the next 
really positive quality is a sense of moderation and the use of the requisites of life. You know, the requisites, according to the monastics, of course, are um, food, shelter, clothing, and medicinals. So to um, just be moderate in our, in our use, I guess, of any of those. Another one is a sense of the proper time and season for doing things. I love that. Maybe someone who has patience for getting something done in the right way with the right, uh, in the right time. Or someone who seizes upon an opportunity to do something because the causes and conditions are ripe in a moment. That's someone who it's really wonderful to, hang, to spend time with. This one is a little bit interesting. I'll have to do a little bit further reading on this one. A sense of different levels of societies. I'm going to put my own interpretation on that. <laughs> And that would be to see how beautiful positive qualities and also greed, hatred, and delusion show up at multiple levels. They're not just individual characteristics. They're characteristics of families and communities and geographies and governments and things like that. So to be, to be able to uh, discern wholesomeness and the lack of it at different levels. And then uh, the final one that Tan Jeff listed, a good quality that you really want to uh, see in people is a sense of how to judge people. That someone knows how to adequately assess whether someone is a good person to hang around with or not. So someone who has some wisdom and discernment in that area. And why do we want to do this? So what the Buddha is saying in these suttas is that um, we should associate with good people versus trying to be totally self-sufficient or self-reliant and learning the Dhamma and practicing the Dhamma. That it really is important to rely on other people as well. And uh, the Buddha gives reasons why it's important not to be totally self-reliant. You know, why it's really important for us to develop wholesome friendships uh, that are meaningful and that are uh, impactful in our lives. So one reason why it's important not to be s totally self-reliant and to associate with wise and kind people is that the roots of skillfulness uh, lie really are very well mixed with the, the roots of unskillfulness in our heart minds. And I think we've seen that in, our, in this wonderful intense practice that we have that we could decide to do one action and you know half of it could be because it's a generous action or some very positive quality, but there could also be some mixed motivation in there. And there's, we're doing it because it's uh, creating a self of you know, maybe it's engaged with um, Bawa making ourselves in some way better than worse than in some area of our life. And that's difficult to see on our own. So it's wonderful when people can point that out to us in a, in a gentle way that we might be able to hear. And when people do point that out, that's, that's, those are gems. You know, to have someone who is able to tell you what they're seeing, someone with a little discernment and kindness, that's a huge gift. 
so uh, the roots of unwholesomeness and wholesomeness are difficult to tell apart a lot of the time. So uh, we might not be able to get it right. You know, maybe our discernment is not strong enough. But listening to someone else, uh, listening to uh, someone else give us some advice or to point in a direction for us to see that clearly, that is really an excellent uh, reason to... um, to hang around with wise and kind people. Another reason is for having our community encourage us in the task of developing positive qualities. You know, it's not everyone that you hang around with who notices beautiful qualities in you and, and would, you know, comment, wow, you're so generous, you're so kind, you're so wise, you're so thoughtful. You know, that is so beautiful in you. And we know how that feels. So we want to hang around people who will encourage us to develop positive qualities. Even if we're not yet totally committed to this path, you know, we haven't decided that Buddhism is a way for us or we don't even know if we believe that awakening and a, um, if we don't even believe or know that Freedom is possible. That an end of suffering is possible. Even if we're not sure about that, it's still very wonderful to hang around wise and kind people for a couple reasons. One is that um, people who embody those uh, qualities of the Dhamma, they're the safest people to spend your time with. You're not going to have to worry about things going missing or... (laughs) Or, you know, why they're talking to your partner so long or... (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so wonderful not to have those things be part of any relationship, really. And then the other part of all of those qualities that I mentioned is actually that the first two of them, the conviction in in, uh, karma and generosity, you can know by hearing someone talk, but all of the other qualities, uh, wisdom, knowledge of the Dhamma, um, knowing one's strengths and weaknesses, and, you know, moderation in life, and um, knowing the proper time for doing things, that you have to actually see people do that. That you can't just know a person has those qualities by listening to what they say. You actually have to observe their behavior to see if they have those wonderful qualities. So it is, it is said that you know, um, our path to awakening is a very, very lawful process. And we don't necessarily even have to know the road to get there. We have to know the road to take the next step, but it unfolds in a way that we could never have anticipated. And it's not us that's doing the traveling. And one of the requisites for um, one of the requisites for uh, traveling that path is wise company and having um, 
a good social environment, having faith in the people that you're spending time with. And what this does is um, having conviction in the people that you're hanging around with, having faith in the company that you're keeping actually counts as a first step from an acquaintance with the Dharma or an, an acquaintance with the path to a commitment to the path. It's a, you know, it's a big step to make a commitment that for the most part you are going to spend your time with people who embody these qualities. This is, this is what Ajahn Sumedho says. This applies to all good things in life. Happy times, loving relationships, success, good fortune. These things are certainly enjoyable and not to be despised, but we, should, we shouldn't put our faith in something that is in the process of changing. Once it reaches a peak, it can only go to the, in the other direction. We ask not to take refuge in wealth, other people, countries, or political systems, relationships, nice houses, or good retreat centers. <laughs> Instead, we're asking to take refuge in our own ability to be awake, to pay attention to life no matter what the conditions might be in the present moment. The simple willingness to acknowledge things for what they are as changing conditions liberates us from being caught in the power of attachment and struggling with emotions or thoughts that we're experiencing. And it's in wise company and good company where, you know, those values are reinforced and watered and made stronger and stronger when we can see just how happy it makes us and how safe we feel and how welcome we feel and how happy to be around people with positive qualities who don't necessarily put a lot of faith and trust in material objects or identities as a... Um, as a source of well-being. It's different. I mean, a lot of people in our society, as you know, put a lot of uh, faith in identities and stuff for their well-being. The next promotion, the next book, the next relationship. So that's the first dimension of um, faith, sada, confidence, conviction. Conviction is a good term. So the first dimension of it is the social dimension. The second dimension is the intellectual dimension. And this is what are we to believe in? What should we believe? Or what do we believe? So we're going from verbal knowledge uh, and you know, hearing people and seeing people in the social aspect uh, and looking at a conviction of what we should know or what we should believe. And of course, you know, the first thing, uh, intellectual dimension of uh, conviction is right view, which is, you know, the first path factor in the Eightfold Path, and also some could say the last path factor. And... Um, I think Carol gave a beautiful talk on right view. So, but I do have these notes, so I'm going to go over them. 
but she gave an excellent talk on right view. And we know that um, the Buddha taught that there are two kinds of right view. There is mundane right view, and that's really important. That is, again, no understanding the law of kama, that uh, we are by and large responsible for our happiness or unhappiness in the world, that it's not dependent on external things. I mean, I think all of us know in wisdom, you could say that, you know, what is the worst thing that could happen to any one of us? It's probably death. But, you know, death isn't even the worst thing that could happen to us, right? There's probably a lot of worse things that could happen. And uh, probably a lot of those worst things would be us as perpetrators of a lot of harm. Wow. You know, to take that in and to just set a really big commitment, you know, to be non-harming in the world. You know what a really excellent time to take that commitment is? When you feel really, really hurt by something. And you can really feel what that's like. That's an excellent time to take a commitment for non-harming. So the Buddha said, beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be the heir. Taking that in. And according to the Abhidhamma, there's 10 uh, very unwholesome things that we can do that we have to be careful of. And of course, we know those are destroying life, taking what is not given, wrong, wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasures, verbal actions are false speech, slanderous speech, and harsh speech, idle chatter, covetedness, I think, which is greed and wanting things, ill will and wrong view. And those are specifically cited as wrong intellectual dimensions. You don't want to believe in any of those things. But it's probably very subtle how, you know, we probably have some latent torments that are based in some of these things that we don't even realize that that's part of the motivation of why we're doing things. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that. One of the problems with Westerners is that we're complicated because of the lack of faith. Our identities get so complicated in so many ways and highly personal. We take everything personally. Sexual desire and the sexual forces in our bodies are regarded as very personal. The same is true with hunger and thirst. We identify with hunger in a very personal way. The basic forces that are just natural, we take on and judge them, judge them personally. We shouldn't be cowardly and weak. Pusulaneous, 
which is a word I didn't know and I had to look up that he used, pusillanimous, pusillanimous, no, excuse me, pusillanimous, which means showing lack of courage or lack of determination or, uh, or being timid. So we get really intimidated by some of these stronger forces like sexual desire. He had a really excellent, uh, he had a very excellent um, chapter in his, in his book, Ajahn Sumedho, Intuitive Awareness, his book on intuitive awareness about, you know, we have all of these things that are just marks of us as animals, as sentient beings on the planet you know, desire to eat and having to, to um, having excrement and having the desire to reproduce and all of the funny little cultural ways that we've turned that into something special to be able to sell stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and we take that all so personally, like we invented it, like, you know, and it is pretty much universal. I'm sure that there's definitely um, gradations of it in individuals based on some biological or even psychological factors, but it's not a personal thing. And it's, and it's part of nature being nature. And I think we would feel more comfortable really um, dealing with particularly sexual energy and I, I want to say one thing that Joseph of, often talks about, about sexual energy on long retreat. And that is, you know, we're energy systems. And it can feel like energy is building up. But that energy is building up for a good reason. That's, you know, magnifying, um, you know, our mindfulness magnifies things so we can see more clearly what's happening with these body-mind processes. And we don't necessarily want to dissipate that. That's a good thing. And, you know, release of sexual energy, it does, you know, dissipate that energy buildup that is part of the process of, uh, that we're practicing with here. And if you do release some of that energy, take the precept the next day. It's just, it's a training. We're all working with it. So um, thinking about kama as, an, as a part of a mundane right view, it grounds our distinction between good and bad or maybe wholesome and unwholesome. And it, it does an interesting thing. It actually uh, points to a universal understanding of harm to self and harm to other and what's good for self and good for other. And I know that can be sometimes a... Um, you know, a question for people, is there such a thing as a universal good and bad? And I think the Buddha is saying that there is a universal good and bad. It's about harming oneself or harming others and really training ourselves to know when that's a possibility and to refrain from that. So that's one of the influences of mundane right view. And it also... Um, You know, it also asserts knowing what is um, good, good, wholesome action and unwholesome action as not part, not an individual thing. It really applies to everybody. This is what Pima Trojan says about that. And regarding 
uh, karma and de dealing with wholesome and unwholesome um, uh, habit patterns that we might have in our heart and mind. This is what Pema Chodron says about that. Work with the greatest defilements first. We may so take for granted the multitude of daily irritations that we don't even think of them as something to work with. Anybody have daily irritations? <laughs> Just the things that are getting you daily? To some degree, they are the hardest obstacles to work with because they don't reveal themselves. The only way you know that there are arising is if you feel righteous indignation. <laughs> Let righteous indignation be your guide that someone is holding on to themselves and that someone is probably you. <laughs> it's very easy and, you know, common for people to get triggered on retreat, on long retreat like this. Because... You know, our energy, we are collecting our energy and really saving up our energy to uh, be able to see more clearly what's going on with these hearts and minds. And we do get triggered more easily. And I think that that actually can be a very positive thing because it really shows you what maybe it can show you where some of your hidden uh, habit patterns are that you can deal with skillfully to see them more clearly and decide, is, is this wholesome or is this unwholesome? And how might I see this arising and deal with it in a way that uh, doesn't cause harm to myself or others? So that's mundane right view. And what about superior right view? So this is what the Buddha said. What now is right view? It is an understanding of suffering, dukkha, understanding of the origin of suffering, understanding of the cessation of suffering, understanding of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So faith and confidence allows us to take on the Four Noble Truths as a way that we practice in the world. And if we have faith and confidence in the truth of, the, of this view, it actually uh, begins our practice by us taking refuge in the practice and uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And as we let go of, of the conventional world, of all of these things that we think are going to make us happy, as we let go of those things, the three jewels catch us. They catch us when we're floundering around and not knowing what's happening in this moment or what's wholesome or not. The three jewels catch us when conventional truths collapse. That's where we land. And we understand what those truths are, right? I love it that each of the Four Noble Truths, as we all know, has a verb associated with it. So this is um, superior right view, which is part of faith and confidence. This is part of what we should believe in in order to 
to uh, build strength and confidence in the path and that will lead us forward. So we believe in the, in the Four Noble Truths. This is the Noble Truth of Dukkha, suffering. Suffering is to be known. And that's what we're working with here. We're opening to the unsatisfactoriness on so many levels. This is a noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving, clinging. Clinging is to be let go. <coughs> this is the noble truth of freedom, awakening, happiness and bliss. Happiness and bliss is to be experienced. This is the noble truth of the way leading to freedom, awakening, happiness, and bliss. Maga, path. Path is to be cultivated. So I love this. This was uh, some new information for me and I really loved it. So simply listening to the Dhamma is not enough or being around really wise people and you know, seeing how they act in the world and gaining confidence in that these practices really are purifying and they really are satisfying and they really do create safety and space. But there's a very specific way to actually work with the Four Noble Truths right here in our practice. One of the things that uh, Tan Jeff tells us is that in addition to uh, listening to the Dhamma, we need to develop appropriate attention to the Four Noble Truths. And he gives us some advice about how to do that. One is knowing how to focus on the right questions that we ask ourselves and our teachers. That's interesting. What is a right, a right question that we ask ourselves and practice or that we ask our teachers? We begin by learning how to ask productive questions and then it moves on to using the categories of the Four Noble Truths to ask questions of our experience. I thought that that was really beautiful. We use the categories of the Four Truths to ask questions of our experience. It could be as simple as is there dukkha present or is there dukkha absent? What is the craving and clinging? Is there craving and clinging in this experience right now? Is there freedom in this experience right now? And how is Sila, Samadhi and Panya showing up in my life on retreat or off retreat? The eight path factors. What path factors am I cultivating right now? And which ones are getting weakened? Depending on my actions of body, speech and mind. I thought that was really a wonderful pointing a finger of using the Four Noble Truths to question our experience. And when we do this, what happens is, of course we all know that we have a conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths. You know, sila, right, um, right activity, creates a calm mind, uh, which creates the 
absolutely necessary conditions for mental training to happen, for uh, mindfulness and right effort and um, for concentration to happen. So we know that, you know, those factors need to be possible or that need to be present in order for the training of the mind. But then, you know, we uh, actually have a, an insight into the Four Noble Truths. We see it in a way, and I'm sure many of you have had multiple insights on this retreat. And, you know, pointing out, you know, I think part of what the directions are of working with the Four Noble Truths is to really acknowledge when you do have an insight. Could be a little baby insight. It could be a big, huge insight. But to really stop and take it in and like, wow, I know something now uh, in my heart, in my being that I didn't know before that uh, wisdom arose. And to really take it in. And, you know, I, I call mindfulness the data collection system for intuitive awareness. So to really soak up you know, that insight and let it land in your body and see how it feels energetically and um, in the heart and how it motivates us to act and things like that, to really take it in. You know, all of the eight path factors of the eightfold path start with a conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths and then goes to wise reflection on them and then goes to that direct intuition of the same truths on a much deeper level and, a, and a, on a level that absolutely changes us, a level that uh, wisdom and love free us in ways that, you know, our egos will never be able to do. And that's where freedom really is. And that is an act of paying appropriate attention. And we know that mindfulness, which is what we're all expert on right now, right? We so know mindfulness right now. <laughs> you should pat yourself on the back for that right now. Come on, let's do it. Come on. We're practicing mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> That's a wholesome thing. We love that. I love that about all you guys. You love your mindfulness. And mindfulness is necessary for right discernment. And this is what the Buddha said in the Dhammapada. Even if for a lifetime a fool stays with the wise, he knows nothing of the Dhamma as the ladle, the taste of the soup. Even if for a moment a perceptive person stays with the wise, he knows the Dhamma as the tongue, the taste of the soup. We are all just plumping up our perceptive pe people here. We're, we're getting a taste of the soup, of the real thing. And the purpose of why we're doing it is to strengthen our discernment and to really understand on a deeper level wholesome and unwholesome in these bodies and minds. And we need the Dhamma to really understand that we need mindfulness to understand Dhamma in its most uh, fundamental and most impactful way. So what are some of the uh, characteristics of um, 
right view and someone whose mind is full of conviction, a really wholesome conviction and faith. And um, I'm sure we all know this. It's an unshakable faith and conviction in the awakening of the Buddha. That's a really important thing for us to reflect on is, yeah, the Buddha was free. I mean, he, it didn't matter what external conditions were around him. People could be mad at him. People could give him bad food. You know, his relatives could try to kill him. Crazy stuff could happen. And he was always at peace and actually always happy. As James said, you know, they call the Buddha the happy one. And it's wonderful for us to reflect on that, to really have faith in the Buddha's awakening and the awakening of people in our lives, you know, maybe not full arhantship, but I've seen awakening, even in these people. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> I've seen it. And when you have unshakable conviction in the ability to be free and what that looks like and how wholesome and beautiful that is, that branches out into unshakable conviction in the triple gem and the truth of Dhamma, which is just the physics of how things work, and the truth of the Sangha as a place where, you know, is where we cultivate these qualities the best way. And this gives us an unshakable faith in the Dhamma, I mean in the Eightfold Path and Maga, in each of the path factors. And it uh, gives us a confirmation and a real faith that the Eightfold Noble Path is a synopsis or, uh, as it unfolds, a way to really practice these beautiful qualities, how to practice this wise discernment and metta for ourselves and others to practice sila, samadhi, and panya for our own awakening and for the safety and love of people around us. So the standard expression of conviction or faith in the triple gem is, the Buddha is rightly self-awakened, the Dhamma well-taught, and the noble Sangha worthy of honor. Just to even reflect on that. Sada or conviction, faith is the background for all of that to happen. And then finally, practice what to do. How do we practice it? This is what Ajahn Sumedho says. Trying to figure out how to be aware is an impossible task. What is he talking about anyway? Wake up, be aware, and then trying to figure it out and think about it, you just go around in circles. It's frustrating. Oops. <laughs> Intuitive awareness is frustrating to an analytical person whose faith is in thought, reason, and logic. Awareness is right now. It's not a matter of thinking about it, but being aware of thinking about it. How do you do that? <laughs> it's not a matter of thinking about it, but being aware of thinking about it. You guys like that. How do you do that? My insight came when I was a novice monk, Ajahn Sumedho says. How do you stop thinking? Just stop thinking. Well, how do you stop? Just stop. How do you just stop? The mind always comes back with how. How can I do so? Wanting to figure it out rather than this is the big line here, rather than trusting in the imminence of it. 
trust and faith go together. Trust in the imminence of awareness. Trusting is relaxing into it. It is just attentiveness, which is an act of faith. It's a trustingness, sada. It gives you perspective on anything you want to do. That's an aspect of faith, of just trusting in the eminence. Presence, going back to presence and not trying to fool with it. There's some other advice about um, how to practice with it. This is pretty, this is really interesting and it, for some of us, it might be a challenge. It's not a challenge for me, but for some of us it might still be a challenge. I can see how this could be a challenge. And that is our willingness to put the Dharma ahead of our own personal preferences. you know, of knowing what uh, right conduct is, wholesome conduct and unwholesome conduct. And um, to put the Dharma ahead of our own preferences. You know, being here fully on this retreat, regardless of whether your favorite teachers are teaching or you're interviewing with them or how the food is or how the bed is or what we're chanting at night to put that aside and to do the practice with as much conviction and faith and love as you can. Which means also developing, you know, love and care for yourself while you're doing it. Putting the Dharma ahead of of our preferences. Putting aside our likes and dislikes. Putting aside those worldly conditions that we think are going to make this experience better and putting, uh, making a priority the practice of the Dharma and trusting regardless of whether it feels like we're doing it right, you know, to definitely see doubt in there. You know, as Westerners, we might commonly judge the Dhamma versus maybe Western psychology or other scientific facts or the Dharma compared to other things that we have learned about being well or happy or even what other traditions might tell us. But that is one aspect of faith. And I actually have a... What, what works for me to really plump up this aspect is to think about the Buddha. I mean, how smart was that guy? He was incredibly smart. I mean, you know, every time uh, they come out with a new um, theoretical system, you know, now they're coming out with, what is the latest, like, systems theory and um, what is that one out of UC Santa Cruz? Uh, what is it? It's like a chaos theory, right? Or chaos theory. You can look at what the Buddha taught, even in dependent origination, and go, oh my God, that's what he taught. You know, some of his psychological insights. I mean, even into the three, na- the three dimensions of uh, conviction, you know, that's pretty sophisticated stuff. <laughs> He's the best uh, teacher that I've ever seen. And so I just really trust it. When I don't understand what he said about something and I haven't experienced it myself yet, I still believe that he knows what he's talking about. 
And I think that that is one thing that we can do, even if you don't trust him that much, to do your own experiment and to try it and see if it works. So this is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that. Well, this is what the Buddha said. Which is more worthwhile use of your time? The pursuit of objects and ideals subject to change in death or the pursuit of the deathless? <laughs> Only you can answer that. <laughs> so this is what Ajahn Sumedho says. Learning to trust in this awareness is an act of faith, but it is also very much aligned with wisdom. It's something that you have to experiment with to get a feeling for. No matter how well I might describe or expound on this particular subject, it is still something that you have to know for yourself. Doubt is one of your main problems because you don't trust yourself. Many of you strongly believe that you are defined by the limitations of your past, your memories, your personality. You're thoroughly convinced of that, but you can't trust that. I can't trust my personality. I will say, I will say anything. <laughs> Nor can I trust my emotions. They flicker around and change constantly depending on whether the sun is out or it's raining or that things are going well or falling apart, my emotions react accordingly. What I trust is my awareness. It is something for you to find out for yourself. You can't just trust, you can't just trust what I say. Anything I describe now is just an encouragement for you to trust. So let's just sit for a minute and trust awareness. have a nice walk and you're all invited to come back for the nine o'clock sit and chant and you're also invited to take care of yourselves thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharma seed dot org slash donate.